If you have a copy of God's Word, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Continue in our series in this book. Great book of practical wisdom, and this chapter is no exception. Let me read for you the first ten verses, Ecclesiastes 9. Hear God's Word. I have taken all this to, to my heart and explained it in that righteousness. Righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and one for the wicked, for the good and for the clean and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. For whoever is joined with all the living, there's hope. Surely a live dog's better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have all already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that's done under the sun. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. And for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there's no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Great passage of practical wisdom that God provides for us here. Um, I call it uh, enjoy, learning to enjoy Life with balance. Uh, we all need balance. I was at a birthday party, and um, out comes the birthday cake and the ice cream. I, I had asked for a small portion. And there's this soup bowl with covered in the bottom with cake, lots of icing on our own birthday cakes. And then on top of that, so much ice cream that it needed immediate attention. I mean, you can't turn it down. You just got to keep it from spilling over. You know, so you, you jump in. And I knew immediately from the first taste I was in trouble. Because I had already eaten way too much. And this, my brain was telling me this is good. But you're going to be miserable if you eat all of this, you know. There's this balance between your brain saying one thing and your body saying another thing. And I knew that I needed a smaller portion. And now I've tasted and I've got a large portion. What am I going to do? Well, I did what you do, right? I listened to my body and I ate it. And later on, I felt miserable. We need balance. 
We need somehow to let our brains overpower our bodily urges so we don't go over the edge. We don't go into those things that aren't really going to be good for us. We need to let principles dictate practice. Right thinking needs to manage right behavior. I think that's what this passage brings us. It brings us in the first set of verses, the principles. And it shows us the practice. So let me give you the four principles and then we'll look at how to practice that. First of all, the principle of sovereignty. Verse 1. He says, just, just take this to heart. In other words, put it in your brain and think about this. Righteous men, wise men, their deeds, they're all in the hand of God. In other words, God's sovereign. You know, we used to sing a little song, He's got the whole world in His hands, right? That's a principle. We're going to look at how to practice that principle. But He's given us that principle. It's the principle of sovereignty. God does have all of us in His hands. No doubt about it. Now, that doesn't mean we're puppets. We know we all make moral choices. We're choosing to do this or that all the time. But realize, as you make your choices, as I make mine, I still rest, you still rest in the hands of God. Now, some people think life rests in other things. Some people worship things. We say, you know, life consists in how many or how big are our toys. That's materialism. That's a view a lot of people give themselves to. Other people say, no, life is in our pleasure. How much fun can we have? That's hedonism. Others say, it's, it's really all about you. Life needs to revolve around you. You be you. And you get real quick into humanism. And then there are other people who say, it's, life is just a series of random acts. And none of us really have a say in the matter. That's fatalism. Scripture's not saying any of that. The Scripture is saying we're all in the hands of God. It's the sovereign God is in charge and He is in control. We need to realize that, that we, nobody determines their own destinies. God has a plan for this world. He has a plan for this life. We need to wake up and realize that. We are not saved by our works. We're saved by His sovereign grace. Acknowledge the principle. It's going to direct you to balance. But you must embrace that principle of God's sovereignty. Now, is there any way to escape this? Yeah, the, the escape is through Christ. Through Christ's love. God so loved the world that He gave us Christ. We can escape the hedonism, the humanism, the fatalism, the materialism by trusting that the God whose hands we dwell in is also a God who loves us. So it's not a bad thing. He loves us enough to give His Son to us so that we don't perish, so that we live a life. And Christ says, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. So resting in the sovereign hands of God's a good thing. 
It's not something to be feared or rejected. It's something we go to. As a matter of fact, when you, when you really get the principle, you're in the hands of a sovereign God, you go through your days and the rug never gets pulled out from under you. You never really face something that's going to bother you because I'm in God's hands. I'm under his care. It's like the three friends of uh, Daniel. You remember them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the king says, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. And these three friends said, okay. It's like, you're not messing up our day here. You're not messing up our lives because we dwell in the hands of a sovereign God. We may burn up, we may not burn up, but we know we're in God's hands. And so in God's hands, we won't perish. We have a Redeemer who resurrects. We're going to be good because of this principle of sovereignty. I know we kind of embrace it. He's got the whole world in his hand. But sometimes we don't live it. So I'm just calling you back to the principle. And say, you know, this is really a good principle. I need to embrace it. I need to embody it. Incorporate it into what I am doing, not just what I'm thinking. Second principle he gives us. You see down in verse 2 and 3. It's the principle of death. Verse 2, it's the same for all. And the way he says it is one fate. doesn't matter whether you're righteous or wicked, clean or unclean, whether you go to church, don't go to church. Again, verse 3, the first part, there's this, this evil that it seems that no matter what, one fate for all men. We're all going to die. It's determined. Does it matter? See it simply. Look at Hebrews 9, 27. Hebrews 9, 27. Doesn't get much simpler than this. Hebrews 9, 27. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. That's why no one in this room has ever seen anybody leave this earth without dying. It is appointed to all people to die. Does it matter whether you're rich or not rich, rich or poor, whether you're wealthy or not wealthy, whether you're good or bad? It just doesn't matter. We are all going to die. No one escapes, again, except through Jesus. Jesus says, Though you die, you live in me. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live. Even though it's appointed that you die. So again, there's, there's, there's grace from our God. And it's, it's, it's ponder this death. Let me give you a passage that really urges us to ponder it. Look at the, uh, Psalm 90. Psalm 90. It's one of the few psalms that wasn't written by David or Solomon or someone like that. It's written by Moses. And Moses says this in verses 10, 11, and 12 of Psalm 90. He says, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. Or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it's gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? 
So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. How many of you really nailed this down and thought about it? I've got 70 years. Maybe. This is the average. Of course, they do the averages. You can Google them. What's the average life's expectancy? And you're coming right in here all the time. It's 70-ish. Or maybe 80-ish. But again, you die. Some die before, some die after. There's the average. He said, so what are we going to do with it? Are we going to use that knowledge, that principle of death, to do something with it? Will we ponder our days? Will we count our days? How many days do we have to do? What is it you're going to do? Because you have a limited number of days to do it. And when you're done with those days, you face God. It's appointed to all men to die and then face an evaluation, a judgment. Have we lived out our days well? We live any way we want if we don't embrace the principle of death. Pondering death enables us to live well, to live better, to live with excitement of things that are accomplished and, and where the direction of our future. So embrace the principle of sovereignty, the principle of death, a third principle, the principle of sin. Why do we die? Well, the reason we die, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. And the gift of God's eternal life through Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. That's why we die, because we're sinners. God says sinners earn the wage of death. Well, are you a sinner? Yes, all of us are sinners. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. Well, look at it in Ecclesiastes, the last part of verse 3. It says, furthermore, furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity. It's in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. That's why they die. Why? Full of evil and insanity. I love this description of sin because, I don't know, it just hits me differently. It hits me harder when my wife says, why did you do that? Some sin, you know. I don't know about you, but I sin every day. I'm sorry. And I have to deal with it. And sometimes it's so bad that she says, why did you do that? And it hits me. You're right. It makes no sense to sin. It's insanity. I don't have reason to give you that's not going to be insane. I can't make it sound better than it is. It's evil. That's what sin is. And that's the way it's addressed here. That we've got to see we all sin. We've got to come to our senses. That's what the prodigal son said he had to do. You know, go back to my ice cream illustration for a minute. If I eat that cake and ice cream, all of it, every week, just say one helping. In other words, if I eat a little more than is suitable for my body, 52 weeks a year, 
At the end of the year, I step on the scales and I weigh 15 pounds more than I started. And I say, I don't know how it happened. And you all laugh. You do know how it happened. That's an insane statement. You ate more than you should 52 times. It's a no-brainer. It's insanity. Come to your senses, dude. Or Like the prodigal son, he took this great inheritance, so he was wealthy, and he goes out, and before long in the story in Luke 15, he is taking a job slopping hogs. And he says to himself, I don't know how this happened. I, was, I had so much money. And then it dawned on him, oh, I spent it little by little by little by little, and then it was gone. He says, I had to come to my senses. I had to stop the insanity. Stop doing sin little by little by little because it adds up. We've got to understand and embrace the principle of sin. It matters that we learn to shun sin, do away with it as quickly as possible while it's as little as possible because it grows on us. And we get to the end of our life and say, I don't know how this happened. It's insanity. Come to our senses. The word repent is coming to a knowledge of an evil offense against God. Turning from that evil offense and turning to God. Saying, I want what's sane and what's righteous. I want to stop the insanity. One of the people call it the uh, Christian's bar soap. You want to clean up your life. It's 1 John 1, 9. And 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess literally means to agree with God. If I agree with God that He is right. I am wrong. He's righteous. I'm evil. If I agree with Him, God, you're right. I've been messing up. What I've been doing is insane. He says, if you will just agree, come to me. I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Righteousness. Now, you don't get the beauty of that cleansing and that relationship with God until you confess, until you agree with Him, until you embrace the principle of sin. It's a real deal. The principle of death, the principle of sovereignty. Now, one other principle in this passage, Ecclesiastes 9, verses 4 through 6. The principle of rewards. It says, whoever is joined with all the living, there's hope. Surely a live dog's better than a dead lion. And let me just explain that illustration real quick. In biblical times, they had no concept of pets like we have pets. And if I say something bad about your dog, you get upset. They viewed dogs like we view coyotes. Ugly, scrawny coyotes, you know. Rabid coyotes. That's the way they viewed dogs. They viewed dogs like a rat. So a rodent. They didn't want them. But now lions was an exalted, glorious beast. 
in their day. So that's, that's the illustration here. It says, he says, uh, but the, uh, where was I? Verse 6. I can't find it. There's, I know there's a lion and a dog in here somewhere. Uh, verse 4, there it is. Okay, whoever's joined to, with all the living, there's hope. In other words, if you're alive, if you're still alive, you got hope. Surely a, a live dog. See, the emphasis is on the live dog. The, the dog's alive. It's better than a dead lion. Now, if the lion's the exalted beast, so you would much rather have the lion. But the lion's dead. So since the lion's dead, you, you don't want a dog, but you'll take a dog. Because he's alive. What's his point? His point is, living now is more important than being dead. And he illustrates that with, with the dog and lion. Verse 5, because they no longer have a reward. He mentions specifically a reward. It's, you, you're not going to have it after you've perished. You've got to embrace the principle of rewards. Once you're dead, the opportunity to earn reward is gone. I'll give you a couple passages to show it to you. Look at Matthew 6, verses 19 and 20. Matthew 6. I, I, forget, I had a, a group of ladies come to me once and said, I got, we got a theological question. The, the question is this, should we live for rewards? I said, absolutely. They said, can you show us that from the scripture? And I said, sure. They said, we thought we should just live for Jesus. And I said, again, yeah, absolutely. But they, they don't compete with one another. Look at Matthew 6. Uh, 19 and 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust and destroy and where lives are thieves break and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in. So you ought to be sending stuff ahead into heaven. You ought to be earning rewards that go before you, that await you in heaven. And if you don't get this principle, you don't really get how you're to come to Christ. Show you that. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Hebrews 11, verse 6. It's one of the first things. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that, here's first, He is, must believe that God exists. Secondly, that He is a rewarder. He gives rewards. He rewards those who seek Him. You come to Him in faith that He will redeem you, that He will love you. You must believe that first. But then you've also got to believe it's going to be worth it. He's going to give you something. He's going to give you Christ. He's going to give you His love. He's going to give you His grace. He's going to reward you for seeking Him by faith. Now, many times we, we forget this principle of, of rewards. 
Right now is the best time ever to be living. Why? This is the time you've got, the time I've got. What's going on in the book of Ecclesiastes is when you're dead, this time's gone. In the grave, you don't get to keep seeking first. You don't keep to keep adding up more rewards. As long as you're alive, you've got an opportunity today to seek God, to seek His blessing, to gain His reward, to lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. You should be seeking life. We're in a culture that somehow is saying it might be okay for you to seek death. No. We want to live. Death should be in the hands of God. That's His prerogative when He takes us out. But we need to pursue life. This is what we have ahead of us. Rewards. Glory. We need to pursue those things that God has given us. Pursue the rewards. Now let me give you the... Just let's jump on and get some of the... More of the practice that He's trying to push for us. Verse 1 of chapter 9 says, Take this to heart. Notice how it switches. So instead of just thinking about these principles, verse 10, excuse me, verse 7 says, go then, action terms. We've been thinking for six verses. Now it's time to go, take action, to do something. And he gives us four practical commands that we should be doing, going and doing because of the principle of sovereignty. Death, sin, and rewards. And the commands are the command to practice happiness. The command to practice holiness. The command to practice honeymoonishness. Love that word. I invented it. And it's the command to be hard working. Let me show it to you. First of all, the command to be happy. Verse 7. Go then, eat your bread in happiness. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. Now he's assuming you've got bread and wine. Because he calls them your possessions. If you've got bread, go enjoy it. If you've got wine, I want you to enjoy it with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. That's, that's tremendous. That God is declaring approval of something we've done. But isn't this a wonderful command? I mean, don't, don't miss this. What a command. It's a command to be happy. Some of you have a hard time with that. You wake up grumpy. I'm not talking about your spouse. You wake up grumpy. And you get grumpier. And when you wake up that way, you have to choose joy. You are commanded to make that choice. When you eat your bread when you drink your wine, to do so in a happy manner. Let me show you. In the book, it's it's the theme of the book. Look at chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, verse 24. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 24. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it's from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? One of the ways we have so much fun is eating and drinking. Most of our enjoyment is around eating and drinking. God says, how did you 
How did that happen? It was designed. I, I designed the world this way. I want you to eat. I want you to drink because I want you to have life. And I want you to do it with happiness. Look over at chapter 3, uh, verse 12 and 13. I know there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labors. It's the gift of God. And then also in chapter 5, at verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 18. Here is what I've seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink. And to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he's also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Verse 20. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. So there needs to be an occupation with happiness and gladness. God has designed it for us. Now, back to Ecclesiastes 9, trying to grasp a little of that approval statement. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 18. So we think about being approved of God. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 18. It is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. So I think that helps us get the right context, that I could be able to say, God approves of me without condemnation by you saying, no, no, that can't be true. No, God does approve of me if I'm doing what He wants me to do. He actually commends me by following His Word and following His ways. I need to seek God's approval. Um, Let me just show you some of the blessings that he, He commends to us as He approves us. Look at 1 Peter. I'll just read them to you real quick. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 3 through 6. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, won't fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation already to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you don't see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's where I'm trying to get you. Be happy. Here's a passage declaring we are happy. 
Why are we happy? Who gets this? Who gets an imperishable inheritance? The sons and daughters of God get it. We, who gets rewards that don't perish, that are reserved for us in heaven? The sons and daughters of God get it. When you stop to meditate on what God is giving us as His children, then you can choose happiness. Then you can choose joy. Because we are getting an imperishable inheritance in Christ. Who gets that? Others are watching their inheritances burn up. But ours don't. Choose to be happy. Eat and drink. Yes, say a blessing to God. His grace is poured out on us. And we should eat and drink and rejoice to the glory and honor of God. Rejoice. That's a command. Second command he gives us is the command to be holy. He does it by illustration. Verse 8. Mine, verse 8. It says, let your clothes be white all the time. Now, there's a few of you who got some white clothes on in here. Good for you. But that's not his point. White is just used as a symbolism of purity. That's why we used to see, you're not seeing it as much maybe, but always the wedding dress was white. It was a symbol of purity that she had not given herself to anyone else yet. This was a holy matrimony, a holy marriage, a marriage in purity. I'll give you, you can see it in a number of places through Scripture. Let me just give you one illustration and you get it. Isaiah 1, verse 18. Isaiah 1, where you see the same uh, symbolism used. Isaiah 1, verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow, though they are Red like crimson, they will be like wool. You get it. It's, it's symbolical language. You're messy as red blood. Then you're as pure as wool. The wool or the whiteness is only used as a symbol of holiness. Now, go back to Ecclesiastes 9 and see how this fits in the context. Commanded to be happy which means you're commanded to have a party, right? Right? God's not a killjoy. He says, eat and drink and rejoice. Cheerfully rejoice. But when you have your party, do it in white clothes, meaning it should be a party in purity. It should be a party still committed to holiness, still guided and directed by the law of God. There's a standard for rightness. want you to rejoice, but I want you to do it right, holy, pure, all the time. White clothes all the time. That's the symbolism that he's giving us, that yes, not just be happy, but be happy with limits. And the limits are the law of God. That way we can do what God's called us to do with holiness. Third, uh, practice that he wants us to be involved in. Verse 9, I call it honeymoonish. 
You can look it up. If you don't, I didn't put it here in the outline. If you don't put a hyphen between honey and moonish, it comes up as a misspelling. It comes up as a non-word. So if you want to, for those of you who want to be correct, put the hyphen in and you'll be fine. Spell check will let you go. And you'll be free. But I don't have to define this term. You all know what it means. Isn't that cool? I invented a word and you already know the definition. You know what it means. He wants us to be happy. He wants us to be holy. And he wants us to do it with someone in particular. Notice verse 9. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Again, a very countercultural principle and practice in the Christian church that we are to love our wives and our husbands all of our fleeting days. Not part of them, but all of them. We are to lavish love on one another. We are to not just have a honeymoon, but we are to be honeymoonish all the time. Men, go enjoy your wives today. Wives, go enjoy your husbands today. And every day, God's commands. He wants us to practice loving families. That's His design for us. That's wise according to our God. And so many people are departing, wanting to say, well, you just got to love yourself. It's not what the Scripture says. We deny ourselves to love our spouse, to love our families, to love our God. God wants us taking those trips, those days, those times to eat and to drink And to enjoy our spouse. Hebrews chapter 13. Probably not a verse. A verse I use in counseling a lot. But not a verse perhaps said publicly. But let me just say it. Hebrews 13. Verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor. That's a big statement in our culture right there. Marriage is to be held in honor. That's the way we're to look at it and view it. This is an honorable thing. It's worthy to pursue. It's worthy to hold on to. It's worthy to keep. It's worthy to talk about. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. This is not just for you. This is for everybody. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. In other words, you don't bring someone other than your spouse into that bed. You don't defile it with something other than marriage because the next phrase makes that clear. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. When we do face the principles, God is in charge, He's sovereign, we will die because of our sin and rewards will be given out. Those are the principles that we're under. When we do that, if we live in honor... This glorious God gives great blessings. He says, but the people who ignored the principles, the fornicators and the adulterers will be judged. Have mercy, God. 
Forgive me a sinner. Cleanse me. Let me come under your principles, under your word, and to begin living a glorious, abundant life where you even command me to be happy, but also to be holy and to be all ongoing in my love for those that you have put in my family, church family included. And then number four, the last practice. It makes sense, wouldn't it, that if you really embraced that you were going to face a sovereign God who was going to judge and give out rewards, it would make sense that you would be busy, you would be diligent, you would be hardworking. Verse 10 therefore says, whatever your hand finds to do, it, do it with all your might. There's no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you're going. In other words, don't be half-hearted. Once you get the principles, don't be half-hearted to apply them and to do them. This is a good life. This makes sense. It will have reward for you now and forever. So work with passion, not waiting for a time not to work, but looking for an opportunity to do what God has called us to with all your passion. Well, let me pray for us. Father, time is fleeting, but your word is life-changing. There's so much for us here. The world around us is floundering without principle, without direction, without fullness of joy, without happiness, without holiness without reward. Father, sometimes we look more like the world than we look like your sons and daughters. Forgive us. Father, let us confess. Let us agree. We are a mess and we need to be cleaned up. We ask for cleansing from on high that you would take us out of our sin, that we would come to our senses and we would come back to you. We would follow your principles and your ways, finding them to be our delight, primarily finding you to be our joy. Father, for those who've never seen what it's, what it's like on this side, on the side of Christ and his righteousness, for those who've never seen a life under the management of Jesus, Father, may they see it here today. Draw them to yourself. Use us as your witnesses. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.